Good morning. We are thankful for your presence always and thankful uh, to the God of heaven who's blessed us again to be here and to give him the glory and the honor that he is due. We are in a series of sermons about the church, and this series is intended to help us as God's people learn from the people in the Old Testament who were God's people. And that's because often members of the church today fail to make the connection that the struggles that we're going through are actually nothing new and that they could be avoided if we were to learn Romans 15:4 from the things that were written before us. Often we find ourselves mimicking and imitating the behavior of those that God would not have us to do, things like murmuring and complaining, refusing to trust God, conforming to the world, tempting the Lord, going our own way, false doctrine creeping into the church, Christians being unfruitful and barren. These things could be avoided by learning from God's people in the Old Testament. Well, the opposite is also true. There are great positive examples to learn from as well. We can be faithful. We can be fruitful. We can be holy. We can be transformed into the image of our Father. There are many examples of faithfulness in the Old Testament. And what God would have us to do is to learn and emulate those that are good and learn and avoid those that are not good. Most importantly, we can learn God. God doesn't begin his relationship with his church in the New Testament. He begins that in the Old Testament with his people. And we can learn a great deal about our Heavenly Father as we watch his actions and interactions with his children, as well as the world around them and how God responds to that. That is the background that I would encourage you and to hold in your mind as we're progressing through this material. Would also add an additional thought to hold on to is God is moving toward the cross of Christ. And when you and I talk about the church over here, we're talking about the culmination of the work of God that begins over here. And it's important to learn and watch as God moves his plans forward to bring about the Christ to redeem the world. Brings us to our sermon this morning. Where are we in that process? If you have your Bibles, you turn to Exodus 6, bring you up to speed. Moses has been equipped back in chapter 4 that they may believe that they may believe. That's what the miracles are for. Moses has also been given help. The end of chapter 4, Aaron will be your spokesman. You will be to Pharaoh as God and a mouthpiece or a prophet to Aaron. Moses and Aaron have confronted Pharaoh. We read that in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 last week. And Pharaoh has refused to let God's people go. In fact, he added more to it. He not only refused and rebelled, I will not let them go, he further punished Israel, demanding the same amount of bricks while taking the straw. They confronted him about that, and he said, you're lazy. And as a result of that, they confronted Moses. That brings us to the end of chapter 5, where verses 21 down to verse 23, the children of Israel confront Moses. Why did you come? 
You have made us to stink in the sight of Pharaoh, and you've made things worse than before you came. And Moses then turns to God and asks, why did you send me? You've not delivered these people at all. That brings us to chapter 6. It's important that you keep in mind God's response to that. God will win. The exodus will happen. Pharaoh will let Israel go. Israel will serve the Lord. And Moses and Aaron will be vindicated. The outline of these first 13 verses is what we'll look at for just a moment here. And it's God's response to that. The first point to note is verse number one, the exodus is God's plan. Nothing up to this point is random. Nothing up to this point is going to catch God off guard. In fact, verse number one says, then the Lord said to Moses. Well, when did he say that? Look at 5, 22 and 23. Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you brought me harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Keep reading. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion, he will let them go, and under compulsion, he will drive them out of the land. This is God's plan all along. The plan was for Pharaoh to say no. That was the plan. And now that he has, God says to Moses, okay, now everything is set, and now you'll see. Secondly, the exodus is part of God's promise. Notice verses 2 down to verse number 4. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember that. In fact, if you go all the way back to the first sermon, we started in Exodus chapter 3 at the bush that was burning but not consumed. But why was he there? We went back to chapter 12. We went to Genesis 50, and then we went to Genesis 12, and then we went to Genesis 3, and then we came forward. That's how we got here. Sin entered the world, chapter 3 of Genesis. God called Abraham and made him promises, chapter 12. Joseph is in Egypt, not by accident. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That's Genesis 50. Chapter 2 of Exodus, God says, I've heard the cry of my people. Chapter three, the bush burning but not consumed. I am God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now God says to Moses, listen, it's going along just as I planned it. This was part of the promises. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why we're here. Now, I did not appear to them. He says, I appear to them as God Almighty, but my, not by my name Jehovah. I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them. To do what? To give them the land of Canaan, the land which they sojourned. This is the promises that God made. Thirdly, the Exodus manifests God's care for his people. Beginning in verse number five, you can see that. Furthermore, God says to Moses, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because of the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. 
Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. Note the eyes. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched hand and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land which I swore to give here we are again, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. When you and I are thinking about the church over there, please understand the way we get there is this process of God. And God says, I care for my people. Back in chapter 2, that's what led into the, to the, to the bush. God says, I've heard the groanings of my people. I've seen the affliction that the Egyptians are doing to them, and I am come down to deliver them. Point number four, the exodus will prove Moses as God's servant, God's prophet. Moses will be described in Hebrews through as faithful in all of God's house. The end of this chapter, Moses does what God says. He goes back to the sons of Israel, verse number 9. But that verse says they did not listen to him. Well, the reason they didn't listen is they're still in bondage. And, and Pharaoh is making things harder on them. Moses then says to the Lord, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the end of this verse says God gave Moses a charge and Aaron to go back to Egypt. This brings us to the point in the book of Exodus that will begin the plagues. These plagues are the vehicle through which God will show his power and his name in all of Egypt. This began because Pharaoh said, I know not the Lord. And God will respond by the demonstration of his power. Sometimes when you and I read the Bible, it's almost as if we seemingly lose sight of the fact that there is no win in fighting against God. Pharaoh is not a threat to God. Pharaoh is an opportunity for God. Pharaoh is a useful tool for God, but he poses no threat to the God of heaven. God is going to demonstrate his power in all of the world. And when he's done, Pharaoh will know who the God of heaven is. In fact, that is the key phrase to remember. Look back in chapter 5 and verse number 2, and this is how it began. God told Moses and Aaron, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, verse number 1, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And what God will do by the plagues is, you will know. It begins here in chapter 6 and verse number 7, where God says through Moses, 
And it's not just Pharaoh, it's everyone. Verse number seven says, then I will take you for my people and I will be your God and you shall know. When will Israel know the God of heaven? When he takes them through the exodus, that I am the Lord your God who did what? Who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Chapter seven and verse number five, who else will know? That verse says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Chapter 7 and verse number 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. Chapter 8 and verse number 10, and if you're, if you're reading through this quickly, please know we're in the plagues now. As we read chapter 7 and chapter 8 and go forward, the plagues are coming into Egypt. We're simply not reading the events of each one of them. What we're reading is the effect of this plague is you will know. In chapter, chapter 8 and verse number 10, then he said, tomorrow— so he said, may it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like our God. That's the frogs. Chapter 9 and verse number 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Now you might ask, and it would be a good question, why doesn't anybody know? Why doesn't anybody know the God of heaven? You have to go all the way back to the ark. Eight souls were saved. They came off the ark. What happened? They knew God. They did not glorify him as God. They became vain in their imaginations. They exchanged the incorruptible for the corruptible. They replaced God with images made like to man and four-footed beasts, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's Romans 1, beginning about verse 18. As a result of that, what happened? God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them over. Well, they gave up God. God gave them up. What happens now? God called a man out of that very idolatry. Joshua 24, 1 and 2, Abraham. His fathers worshiped Terah. They worshiped idols on the other side of the river. God called Abraham out from his people, made him the promises, and from your seed, I will bless all the nations of the earth. And now God, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will have his own nation. And while they're growing in Egypt, Pharaoh is confronted and says, I know not the Lord, but God doesn't just say, you will know. He says, you will know, the Egyptians will know, Israel will know. In fact, the whole world will know. When this is done, everybody will know. Chapter 9, in verse number 14, verse number 29, he says, Moses said to him, as soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will no hail that longer, no hail no longer, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. You should go back and read, if you have the time, all of these that you may know statements, because it seems each one of them has a different thing you'll know. 
you will know on the one hand, there's no God except the God in heaven. There's no other God like him. He says on this occasion, you will know the earth is the Lord's. You're going to know so much about this God. Pharaoh did come to know. In fact, before he came to know, it seems as if people in his, in his nation, they began to know before Pharaoh knew. Look at chapter 9 and verse number 18. One of the plagues is the hail. And when the hail comes, verse number 18 says, Behold, about this time tomorrow I will send a very heavy hail, such as not been seen in Egypt from the day that it was founded until now. In fact, it'll be so heavy, verse 19 says, Now therefore send, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home, when the hail comes down on them will die. Some of the Egyptians began to believe. The very next verse, the Bible says, the one among the servants of Pharaoh who heard or feared the word of the Lord made his servants and his livestock flee into the house. Well, Israel would certainly have done that, but this is some among Pharaoh. These are some of the servants in his house. Now, why would they do that? They have come to know. What's led them to that conclusion? The first six plagues. The blood, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the boils, the boils, the moran, that now we're at the hail. By the time they get here and Moses says, listen, this hail is coming. You stay in the field. Some among, they come to know. But it's not just eventually Pharaoh comes to know. In chapter 12 and verse number 30, the Bible says, and this is the last plague, Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go and do what? Worship the Lord, as you have said. There was a time when he didn't know him, but he knows now. In fact, he says, take both your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and go and bless me also. God, through these plagues, is going to be known. Look over in Joshua chapter 2. In Joshua chapter 2, these events that you and I are reading are not disconnected stories and happenstance and randomness. That's not it at all. We're marching from garden to garden. Because of the sins in, in Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane is absolutely essential. And as bad as this is, it will be as great as that is. How will we get there? God will move his plan forward and the world will know. In fact, Rahab makes the decisions that she makes based on knowledge. In Joshua chapter 2 and verse number 8, the Bible says, now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof. Those are the spies who came to spy out the land as Joshua had sent them. 
And she said to the men, I know, I don't think, feel, or guess. I know that the Lord has given you the land. How did she know that? She wasn't there. I know that God has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. All the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. How do you know? For we have heard. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, who you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no courage remained in any man no longer because of the Lord your God. He is God in heaven and in earth. God's power was shown, and the world knew. God's power also demonstrated his power over the Egyptian gods. The reason they didn't know God is they'd given themselves to idolatry. And God is saying, by these actions, I will show you that there is no God like me. Look at chapter 12 of Exodus and notice verse number 12. God says, for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Everything they worshiped, God demonstrated his power over it. The Nile changed to blood, chapter 7, verses 14 to 17. The animals, chapter 8, verse 1 and verse number 2. The magicians brought up more frogs, chapter 8 and verse number 7. The real power would have been in removing the frogs Moses brought. What kind of power is it to add to the problem? When they wanted the frogs gone, he didn't go get his magicians. Look at chapter 8 and notice verse number 8. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go. Moses asked, When do you want them gone? Verse number 10, he said, Tomorrow. I heard a preacher preach a sermon entitled, One More Night with the Frogs. Why would the man want one more night with these things? But he did. When do you want them gone? Tomorrow. So he said, be it according to your word. Why? That you may know that there is no one like our God. Everything they worship, God has power over it. Power to set Israel apart, chapter 8 and verse number 22. Verse 21 says, For if you do not let my people go beyond, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses and in the houses of the Egyptians and will be swarms of flies and also the ground on which they do. Have you ever been among a swarm of flies? You know one of them in your house is a problem. Can you imagine a swarm? Have you ever seen one of those commercials? I've I seen it many years ago, and they would show people in, in, in very struggling, underdeveloped countries, and you would just see the people sitting there in the pictures, and flies would be flying on their face. And, and, and the people seemingly wouldn't even do this. 
It would just sit there. And when you and I look at that, you think, well, why don't they just? You haven't been among those bully flies. That's the problem. There are some flies who, when you're among them, you do like this, and they will go. <laughs> you can move them, and they'll go that far, right back. After a while, you just get tired of doing this. How do you know? I was there. I experienced this. Sat in the desert, hot as it could be, and the flies just kept coming. And you could do this, and you would start, and you would never stop. After a while, you just say, y'all go ahead. <laughs> just, just go ahead. We're just going to sit together today. What are you reading here? Swarms of flies. Where? Everywhere. But look at the next verse. Verse 22 of chapter 8 says, But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of flies will be there in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. You know, Israel is in Egypt too. They're all in the same land. Goshen is a part of the land. And what God is saying is, I will show you. You will have flies. My people won't. Have you ever seen a fly that only flies so far and then stops? I, God said they won't fly here. They're going to be on you, but they're not going to be on my people. That's the power of God. He'll do that again. He will block out the sun. If they worship the sun, and I trust that they did, believe they did, God blocks out the sun. It will be a darkness you can feel, chapter 10, 1 to 23. He will judge. He will separate his people. They will be in darkness. God's people will be in light. All their gods, nothing to be compared to the God of heaven. See Psalm 135. Pharaoh was part of the plan. The key to remember is that God is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth and that God is in control of all things. You read the Bible and sometimes you can get fixated on the people and Pharaoh sounds like a bully. And he might very well be to Israel. He might very well be to Moses and to Aaron. But he's not fighting against Moses and Aaron. He's fighting against God. And to God, he's not a threat. He's a tool. He's a servant. In Exodus chapter 9, Moses will say as much. Verse number 13 of chapter 9, the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now, had I put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. You could read that, and God is saying, if I wanted to, I could have killed you already. The next verse says, but indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain. The King James says, for this purpose, I've raised you up. I have actually put you here for this reason. What's the reason? In order to show my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. 
you are not what you think you are. I actually put you here so you could say no to me. So by your saying no, I could then demonstrate my power and my name. In fact, the Apostle Paul quotes it as much. Notice Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, Paul, talking about God's plans, talking about God's purposes, talking about God's choices, ultimately telling the Jews that God chose this course of action and this plan as he sees fit. And what he did in making these choices is he used this person, he didn't use that person. He did this choice, he didn't do that. And he has every right to make these choices. Amen. Romans chapter 9, verse number 9. He says, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Well, who's Sarah? Wife of Abraham. What are we talking about? Abraham, Isaac, we're talking about the promises of Genesis 12. Okay, he says, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also, Genesis 25, when she had received twins by one man, our father Isaac. Okay, so Abraham and Sarah had Isaac, and then Isaac and Rebekah had two sons. Who are those sons? Jacob and Esau. But notice the next verse. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her that the older will serve the younger. The older what? Well, that's two nations, he says, are in you. Those are the Israelites and the Edomites. And the older Esau, Edom, is going to serve the younger Jacob, Israel. Well, who decided that? God did. When did he decide it? When they were in the womb. He decided that. Well, well, who wants to go tell him he couldn't? Who wants to go tell him they got a better way? Who, who, who wants to counsel him? Who, who, who wants to override his choices? What's Paul's point? It's the same thing Moses says. Can God use Pharaoh too? Well, he sure can. Just keep reading. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? <laughs> Is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Let me ask you something, don't you? You know that verse does not say, I will forgive who I want to forgive. That's not what it says. It says, I have mercy. Can God have mercy on this person? Can he? Can God have compassion on that person? Isn't that exactly the way you do it? Or do you leave it up for everybody else to decide who you'll have mercy on when they offend you? And who you'll show compassion to when they offend you? Do you let other people decide that or do you decide that? God said, he told Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he goes further than that. He says, so then it does not depend on the man who wills. It's not about the man. It's not about his good actions or his bad actions. It's about God who shows mercy. That's what Paul says. Or the man who runs, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, Exodus 9, to Pharaoh, what does it say? For this very purpose, I raised you up. How did you get to the throne? I put you there. 
For what purpose? This very purpose. What's the purpose? That I might demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed through the whole earth. When you and I are reading through the Exodus, moving toward the Christ, God is going to make decisions. But this is going to happen because it's his eternal purpose. This is not something that just started in the New Testament. This is not something you pick up. I know. You open up the book of Acts chapter 2, the church begins. Absolutely right. The fact that the church begins there doesn't mean the work to get to the church began there. That work began in eternity, Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. And then we get the privilege of reading it all the way through. And what God is saying is, I did that. The people of God will be delivered. God will judge the nations. Pharaoh does not understand how of little import he is. He's not the God he thinks he is. He doesn't have the power he thinks he has. God is using him in this service and in his plan. Quickly, what are some lessons and applications we can learn today? Number one, just that. God is the absolute unchallenged ruler of heaven and earth. God made the world, Genesis 1. God made man, Genesis 1. Pharaoh and Egypt and every person must learn that there is no God like God. The seven nations in that land, they will come to know it. Rahab gives us some insight. We've heard Edom, Moab, Babylon, Medes, the Greece, Israel, Jew, everybody, Rome, they will learn. In fact, you can see glimpses of this throughout the Old Testament. First, it will be to God's people, I brought you out of Egypt, you should know. And then it will subsequently eventually in, in, eventuate into, I brought you out of captivity from Babylon, you should know. But you hear it spattered throughout the Old Testament. Naaman, when he arrived at Elisha's door, he said, behold, I thought. After he was cleansed, the Bible says this, he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a present of thy servant. When did he know? After the power of God was demonstrated. Now I know. Nebuchadnezzar was told because of his pride that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, Daniel 4.25. This is what Nebuchadnezzar says after it was over. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me. I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Friends, let me ask you this. Do you know? That you may know, that you may know, that you may know. Pharaoh came to know. His servants came to know. Rahab came to know. The whole world came to know. Naaman came to know. Nebuchadnezzar came to know. I ask you again, do you know? Why is it that some of God's people seem not to know from day to day? Life is going good. God is good. Do you know that? Oh, yeah. How do you know? Life is good. Life takes a turn for the worse. Man, I wonder if God is even up there. I wonder why he don't care nothing about What, you don't know? You don't know. Have you heard what they said? Have you seen the new stuff? Have you seen? Oh, so there's somebody out there who can tell you something about God, and by that telling you that thing, you suddenly don't know? You know, some Christians sit around believing themselves to be wise, saying things like, if God is so good, why all this bad stuff happened to people? You don't know. You don't know that God is good no matter what happens on this planet. You don't know God is good no matter what happens in your life. Or is your understanding of God that he is good when I'm good? And if I'm bad, then he's bad. Is that the way you're not? That's not what you're reading in the Bible. How come you don't know? And better question, when will you know? God is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. Number two, whatever God says will happen, will happen. Whatever God says will happen. Exodus 3, God told Moses he won't let you go, not by an outstretched arm. You go a little further and Pharaoh says, I won't let you go. Well, I'm not surprised when I read that in Exodus 5 if God said he won't in chapter 3. When he says no in chapter 5, not surprising to me because I know this, God is right. And I do know that right after God said that, he said, but he will let you go after these plagues. Well, I'm not surprised when I get to chapter 12 and Moses and the last plague happens and then Pharaoh calls Moses and says, get out. Amen. No, whatever God says will happen, will happen. What you and I must do is find out whatever God said, learn it, love it, live it, trust it and obey it, and do whatever he said. One more reason for Bible study. One more encouragement for reading the book. One more encouragement for knowing him through his word. You're not going to learn him any other way. Number three, there is ruin in rebelling against God. Egypt was destroyed over this. In fact, it was Pharaoh's people who came to him and said, hey, you got to get them out of here because everything's being destroyed. We're going to be destroyed. And they weren't wrong. The animals were destroyed, chapter 9, 6, and 7. The land was destroyed, chapter 10, 5 through 7. The people were destroyed, chapter 12 and verse 30. There was a cry heard in Egypt that's never been heard before. Nothing has changed today. We cannot overturn what God has said. God has shown his power, and God has warned humanity. 
Isaiah records these words in chapter 5 of his book. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Evil does not become good because we call it such. Woe to them that put darkness for light and light for darkness. Light doesn't turn to darkness and darkness to light because we say so. Woe to them who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men at mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Woe to them. We cannot overturn what God has said. Jesus said in John 8, 24, if you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins. Acts 17, 30 and 31, Paul says, at the time of this ignorance, God winked at, overlooked, but now commanded all men everywhere to repent. Coincidentally, he overlooked the time, not the sin, Hebrews 2, 1 and 2. But God now commands all men to repent. Why? He has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has given uh, assurance and that he raised him from the dead. God is very clear about sin. He has spoken. He has warned. He has shown us. Paul says in Romans 1 and verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, rootless. They know not God's righteousness. Decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do the same, but give approval to those who practice them. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 9, Paul penned these words, or do you not know? And maybe it's the case that those brethren did not know. And maybe it's the case that people do not know. And so the scripture says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then it adds this thought, do not be deceived. Why would the scripture say, do not be deceived? It's expressly because men have the great ability, human beings have the great ability to deceive themselves first and then move to deceive other people. And so the scripture would warn, do not be deceived. Well, deceived about what? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But somebody says, yes, they will. And God says, no, they won't. It doesn't matter who tells you otherwise. God said they will not inherit the kingdom of God. He does not want you to be deceived by that. A man cannot marry another man with God's approval. He cannot. A woman cannot marry a woman with God's approval. She cannot. A man cannot have sex with a woman who is not his wife with God's approval. A woman cannot have sex with a man who is not her husband with God's approval. A man cannot have a woman who is married to another man and vice versa with God's approval. Any sex outside of a scriptural marriage is sinful. That's God's position. And it doesn't matter if we say otherwise. 
God is going to be right, friends. And there's a solution for sin. Which sin? All of it. There's a solution. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Coincidentally, that's the point of the plan. Why are we having an exodus? Because from that nation, the Christ will come. From the tribe of Judah, the Messiah will come. And what will he do? He will die for the sins of the world. Paul went into Corinth, the very church he penned those words to in 1 Corinthians 6. He went into that city. And when he got there, those things were happening. And what did he do? The Bible says he preached the gospel. Acts chapter 18 and verse 8, many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, and were baptized. So he also wrote this to them. After verse 9 and verse number 10, because they obeyed the gospel, he says, and such were some of you. But you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What happened? They stopped sinning. They gave up their sinful practices for Jesus. They chose God rather than sin. They chose the gospel rather than to keep living those lives. Can anybody do that today? Yes, everybody can do that today, and that's the invitation. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to repent. Who knows what tomorrow may bring? Proverbs 27, 1. What do we learn from Pharaoh? Don't imitate him. Don't be like Pharaoh and meet God in rebellion to God. If you leave this life unprepared, then friends, you will know, but it'll just be too late. Number four, God will deliver his people. It is the story of the Bible. Noah gets delivered in Genesis 6. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, Genesis 50 and verse number 20, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Exodus 2, God says, I've heard the crying of my people. I've come down to deliver them. What happens? We read it from chapter 5 over to chapter 14. What happens? God delivers his people. The faithful will be delivered. When the New Testament saints are being oppressed by Jerusalem and the Jews and Rome, the writers will often hearken back to the Old Testament. And they will use God's deliverance of old to comfort and assure God's people in the New Testament. By faith, Moses. By faith, Joshua. By faith, by faith, by faith. What did the New Testament saints need? Faith. These all died in faith. What's going to happen? Trust God. What's he going to do? He will deliver. The Bible it's close to its end. Revelation chapter 18. John writes these words. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints, and apostles, and prophets. Because God has pronounced judgment. Or God has avenged you against her. There and those individuals who are persecuting the first century saints will be defeated, and they will be delivered just like God constantly defeated and delivered God's people in the Old Testament. 
What's in that for us? The exact same lesson. You and I will resist this world if you and I will stay faithful to God, if you and I will continue to walk in the light, if you and I will continue to trust in him, what will happen at the end of our lives? We will be vindicated. We will triumph. We will go home to be with him in glory. If you're not a Christian this morning, become a member of God's church a member of God's family. Give your life to Jesus. How can you do that? The gospel. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the good news, is he died for your sins and for mine. If you'll believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24, if you will repent, change your heart and your mind, and then change the direction of your life. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, a repentance not to be regretted, 2 Corinthians 7, 10. We have to repent or we'll perish, Luke 13, 3. Confess the name of Jesus, Romans 10, 9, and 10. John chapter 9. And be immersed in water. Baptized for the remission of your sins. And God, through Jesus, will cleanse you from all sin in the blood of the Lamb. That brings us to our subject next week, Lord's Will, chapter 12. You know, that's where that phrase occurs. The Passover when I see the blood, I will pass over Amen. you. What's salvation all about? Being cleansed by the blood so God can pass over Amen. you. Friends, if you've never obeyed the gospel, do so this morning. If you have obeyed the gospel, and friends, let's walk worthy. Let's live honorably. Let's be holy, for he is holy. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.